Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil. Are you okay? I don't know if I am. I haven't been sleeping very well and I've been eating rubbish because I'm stress eating and that's also not really making me feel much better outside of the moment. I wake up every hour with anxiety and have to fight the urge to grab my phone and check to find out if democracy still exists in America. What a week. I'm not going to dwell on it too much because I know that you are probably soaked in it just the way I am. And I'm also not going to be a hypocrite and tell you to step away and look after your mental health. Because even though that's what we should all be doing, it's really fucking hard with this much going on in the world right now. We're all kind of glued to this monumental and historical moment. So let's hope in the next day or so we will have some sort of answer. We know that this isn't going to be easy. We know that even if Biden wins, there is still going to be a very potentially violent and upsetting backlash. And so we're all just going to have to hold each other through that time. And as I said, I know that I'm not supposed to tell you to take a break, but if you want to, I have this lovely podcast episode in which we don't really talk much about politics. I sat down with Amru Al-Khadid who is a British Iraqi who I mean, grew up in Dubai and then Bahrain and then moved to London. And, and they are a non-binary writer, screenwriter, filmmaker, and drag queen, iconic drag queen. They are such an interesting person, such a, such a warm and kind and inquisitive human being, exactly the kind of person that I hoped would eventually come on this podcast. I'm so lucky to have the guests that I do. And I was so excited to have this conversation with Amru because even though we're very different people, we have some real similarities and I haven't really had much of an opportunity in my life or in my career even to sit down with someone else who shared similar background experiences with me because there are so few of us in this industry. And so I got to sit down and talk to Amru about growing up in quite a strict Muslim background and and working out how to navigate yourself in the West through holding on to your identity and your culture, but also understanding that some things maybe don't fit the person that you are today based on the teachings of those religions and those cultures. So we sat down and talked a lot about Islam, the things that we don't resonate with and the things that we do and the ways in which it's frustrating to watch Islam be so misrepresented all of the time, Um, not just by people who aren't Muslims, but by some Muslims themselves who've kind of taken this religion and bastardized it to their own agenda. 
And it's a conversation that we in the mainstream just don't have enough. And it was funny and it was heartfelt and really eye-opening, I think. I really, really, really love Amru. And if you want to follow them, they are at Glamru on social media. They have a book called Unicorn and they are just a joy. So bright, so ridiculously and intimidatingly bright and and fun and human and vulnerable. I loved this episode and I hope you will too. And please, as ever, let me know what you thought. And if you learned anything or if you didn't like anything or if you want me to cover something else, I'm all ears, especially now in this moment where we just need to only have the difficult and important and stigmatized and taboo conversations with as much love and empathy as we possibly can manage. Um, wishing you all loads of love and and sending hugs to your frazzled nerves. I can't quite believe this, but I remain hopeful. I remain hopeful because of people like you, because of how much you inspire me and push me to carry on and keep seeing the beauty in the world. So before I just cry, I'm going to go and not burden you with how emotional I feel at the moment. But please enjoy the wonderful Amru. Amru, you are a public speaker, an artist, a writer, and truly one of the most iconic drag queens of all time. Welcome to I Weigh. Aw, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. No, thank you for dressing up so much. You look unbelievable. I wish people could see you right now. I will be uploading a video of you, obviously, this week onto my Instagram, but woof. This is quite indoor um, Islamic wear, so that's Mm -hmm. why I'm wearing it, because it's quite like... I associate this with just like my grandmothers and aunties just drinking coffee inside. So I know it's like a bit over the top, but this is actually very indoor. I feel like that part of our culture is so hidden. You know, I think a lot of the way that the West see where we come from is as kind of, you know, they see the kind of more poverty stricken or kind of war torn side of Mm. our culture. And yet actually they have no idea how extra we are, how extra the clothes is, how everything is like bejeweled and bedazzled. Uh, And so I love the fact that you are prominent with that part of our culture in the way that you dress. I mean, my grandmother, good God, she would wear this like swimsuit that was covered in jewels and diamonds, like way into (laughs) her 60s and 70s. And, you know, with these like long kind of like sari bottoms and she would wear like a full face of makeup at 80 degrees in the pool. uh, And, you know, just like swim just with her (laughs) chin. just above the water total icon and I feel like so many of the women in our culture are that but the world never sees that side totally I mean I'm always trying to represent those women no matter in whatever like field I'm working in I think there's like a few different things as well like it's a there's the like mega performativity of those women but when I think about my childhood back in Bahrain and Dubai I actually think I mean, there was a lot of difficulties, but there was a lot more sort of passion than what I experienced in London. Like, I mean, I, I'm sure it's similar for you. But what do like, you mean? English people aren't repressed. Just, I don't I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, um, like just three kisses on the cheek 
to every relative every time you walk into a room. Like yeah. every night was 15 people having a meal. Like Not very COVID I, friendly though, is it? They must be going out their minds. I know, minds. I, was I know, <laughs> my God, can you imagine? But I, I want to take, I want to take everyone back through your, I mean, just what a life you have lived. Oh, my well, ditto. goodness, it's ridiculous that you're so young and so many things have happened. And I just kind of want to start back at the beginning with you because to to stand today as a very prominent, very outspoken, highly visible, non-binary drag queen who comes from a Muslim background, I feel like that is just the story that is not told often enough and it would liberate so many kids out there to be able to hear that freedom is possible and you embody Aww, it with such so. like elegance and so much glitter. Um, so <laughs> take me back to a childhood of moving around all the time. This is because of your father's work. You, you were born yeah. where? So I was actually, so my parents met in Iraq and then Saddam was in power. So they happened to have a couple of family members in the UK. So they came to the UK so me and my brother could get born and we automatically kind of got citizenship as for safety. But then at two years old, we were, I moved to Dubai. Um, and then at seven, I moved to Bahrain and then uh, back around 11, turning 12, I came back to the UK. Um, but that early bit of moving around was, um, I mean, we've lived in so many different houses. Like, we did move around a lot. I mean, I was so close to my mum in particular. Um, and um, as a young child, like, I just didn't really question much until about seven. There was so little we were allowed to discuss in terms of like questioning Islam or questioning your family. And I didn't actually question it until um, we got back at seven years old. It was this one specific Islamic teacher who was very harsh, um, who started to make us imagine, you know, every time you commit a sin, you get bad points on your left shoulder. Every time you do good deeds, you get good points on your right. And everything is a sin, literally everything. Like, <laughs> you know, thinking anything negative, like I'm jealous of that girl's fuchsia pencil case sin. I'm jealous of that lunchbox sin. Oh God, I'm tired sin. You know, literally everything, every shoe that's upside down because that's an insult to God is a sin. And then good deeds really hard to accomplish, genuinely. Like, helping save a homeless man's life, age seven, not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then we were told that your mum would also come to hell. And also if you had more sins on your left shoulder at the time that you died, you're going to hell for forever. And they really describe hell to you. Because there's no um, uh, like imagery in Islam, because that's not allowed. Um, it's really described very intensely in the mm. text and you're kind of asked to sort of close your eyes and imagine it. I mean, hell is intense. I mean, this is, you have to imagine this is age seven that we're hearing this, but so on, so what happens is, is on judgment day, you're going to be lying in, in your grave. As soon as you die, you go into, and you're in your grave, you get a flash of whether you're going to hell or heaven. And then you have to sort of sit with that until judgment day. But I mean, basically everyone's going to hell because you know, that's you, everyone's committing a sin just by being alive. It's amazing that knowing just, that doesn't just make everyone just have the purge. It's just, it's just like, it's amazing that people aren't just going, if they know that it's so hard to, to get into heaven, they're not all just going buck wild, getting jealous of everyone's fuchsia pink cake, like <laughs> lunch boxes. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting. I've 
there are some people who do go, but I think it's like at seven, it's just like, right, I've literally got to do whatever possible to get out of that. Because also you can get out of hell. So it's like, if you have fewest, if you only have a couple of sins over your, on your left shoulder, over your right, that's only like two eternities you'll spell in hell and then you'll get to heaven you know, so, you know, it, it, it does vary. And there are some things apparently that are infinite, like homosexuality, but the Quran doesn't actually say that. It's just been culturally imposed by really kind of essentially conservative Islamic scholars. Yeah, every, who, almost most religions have a history of doing that. Yeah, of exactly. Something not like they being start written. out quite yeah. progressive. Well, also, like, um, you know, I believe the Quran was one of the first religious books that, you know, spoke of men and women quite equally. As having equal yes, importance. Yes, quite equally. Yeah. And, and, and it hardly ever talks about men and women. It talks about masculinity and femininity a lot. Mm. Um, it just talks about like the household having the masculine and the feminine. The, so if you like look at that really linguistically, it's not actually talking about, you know, male or female bodies, which I find really interesting. And I mean, we can talk, but yeah, with hell, so you're lying in your grave and then on the final day of earth, your grave is ripped open and you go all the way up to purgatory and Allah's there and will weigh all your sins and good deeds in front of everybody you know who will hear everything you've ever said or thought about them. I'm fucked. And then, yeah, exactly. My God. And I, you know, and then, and then hell is just like hilarious. Hell is literally like you know, you have to eat these fruits and then the fruits turn to little devil heads that rip up your intestines and then you go to the river to drink water, but the water in hell's boiling water. I mean, it's just And like Pitbull's insane. music is playing all day. <laughs> oh my God, yeah, that would be hell. <laughs> oh God, he's sort of over now, isn't he? Ah, uh, hope so. <laughs> he doesn't even sing, he just talks. I don't have. Look, I I admire what that man has achieved. I'm just not a personal <laughs> fan of his music. That's my personal hell. I'm sure plenty of people love Mr. Worldwide. It's just not my vibe. Um, anyway, I wish no harm upon Pitbull, the um, the man of um, the the man of the music. Um, anyway, uh, okay. So I I was reading that you were seven years old, being forced to imagine yourself lying in your graves, all of you in mm. class. That's so dark. Yes. That's so intense. And it's also important just to quickly interject because a lot of people perhaps listening to this podcast might not be very familiar with Islam and it's not all like that. It's just some people take the Quran and they twist it to whatever their agenda is. If they want to right. feel powerful, if they want to scare children, if they want to scare women, uh, it's a you know it's an excuse to exercise their own inner demons. It's not a demonic, like evil religion. No, the Quran itself, and, you know, in my book, the final chapter is really about this, mm. but the Quran itself has lots of wonderful progressive things that have, many things have stopped people exploring that, one of which was actually Western colonialism coming in to Arab countries and getting rid of Sufism, which is a really tolerant form of Islam. I mean, literally exterminating millions of Sufists and... Um, and also bringing in essentially colonial laws on homosexuality and gender that aren't in the Quran. So there's like a bit of entangling to do. And a lot of socialists that I know really, there's a big Muslim contingent of British so socialists. Mm. And you really see that their Islamic faith, which is all about generosity and being nice to others and not having ego and not, you know, not having expensive things and, and making sure that everyone else is served before you, um, you know, 
you can theorize whether that's good or bad, but you actually see a lot of amazing Muslim people on the left who have a really good sense of um, taking care of everybody community. as a society. Yeah. Yeah, community and Islam is like, you know, and also before this one Islam teacher and a couple of others sort of ruined it for me, um, Allah was this amazing sort of, it was amazing to have faith in that way where you just sort of felt that Allah loved you no matter what. Mm. Interestingly, in Islam, um, pre-colonialism and, you know, loads of different things that happened there's this thing in the Quran, which is called Ijithad, which is basically, um, it's well, it's about the Quran, where basically the Quran is supposed to be treated as a series of poems, essentially. And Ijithad means a group of Muslims come together and each give their own agreements or disagreements, and you come up with your own sort of, so it's not a, a kind of a hegemonic text that's supposed to be seen as dogma it's sort of written into there that this is open for interpretation Mm. um and you're supposed to intellectually grapple with it women particularly you know there were so many kind of female scholars and sufiists you know it's sufiists believe that allah is something completely different for every different muslim and it's however you access it so you're not supposed to kind of see the quran as a kind of end state it's a kind of offering um but as with like basically this happened all over the world that was seen as quite dangerous, both to colonialists who came mm. over, but also to men who wanted to, to cis men who wanted to have power was, so they banned that. So that fear now of the Quran that you were just talking about of, oh my God, you disobeyed the rule. That's actually not as inherent to it. That's only if you um, treat it as an end state, like a, a kind of, an, a, Agreed. the be all and end all. So, as ever, like cis men and patriarchy instrumentalized it. And, you know, I'm like you. I, I, I live in the West and my parents live in, in the Arab... I, mean, I don't know where your parents live, but, you know, I am freer here. But, um, but I also have this sort of thing of, well, the West is also responsible to what happened to Islam. So yeah. as happy as I am to be here... I'm also like, what if I'd never had to come because of what you did centuries ago? I don't know. No, a hundred. I think a hundred percent. That's such a reasonable and fair thing. And like, you know, what? Mm. <laughs> I mean, what happened to India? And now, yeah. how we are still seeing politically the impact of what is going on with Pakistan, India, Kashmir? Like, none of this needed to happen. Right. This is British right. colonialism. And so, yeah, it is, it's almost like they came in, fucked everything up and then just kind of got on with their lives and they lived this kind of, you know, free, slightly more, I don't know if it's evolved, but, you know, just a, a more liberated way of life and just forgot about the kind of the state in which they left everywhere else. Yeah, and they use the um, the sort of um, lack of civil rights in such places as sort of cultural fodder to be like, see, like, let's not let immigrants in, look how backwards it is. And it's like, you've created those set of circumstances. A hundred percent. And also sometimes I wonder about the misogyny that kind of happens, you know, from individuals, not from the holy books, uh, within many different cultures, right? Not just Islam, but also, you know, within mm. uh, certain parts of the of kind of African communities or the black community or, you know, China or anywhere, that sometimes mm. it is white oppression that can lead 
the men mm-hmm. from different cultures to want to then go on because they cannot oppress the white man. They therefore oppress the mm-hmm. woman from where they're from. And oh, so there I is this kind of trickle-down right. culture yeah. of then then the kids get oppressed. You know, someone needs to... And then the, the servants, you know, because there's such a huge... Uh, I mean, I think so many people in the West can't even fathom the fact that servants still very much so exist as like a main part of right. culture within a lot it's, of these places. I mean, um, and so God. then they are the most abused. And it's just kind of like this like food chain all the time that always starts with the British at the top. Yeah, 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 yeah. Who have come in and created yeah. a, set of, a, a set of circumstances that has basically led to this power struggle. I mean, like, I mean... You know, it's controversial to think to say, but ISIS really wouldn't be around had we not created the conditions for them in Iraq. And yeah. it's what's really upsetting, you know, that we created this monster that has then not, you know, the West has created a monster yeah. that they then use as a sort of weapon to say, this is why we're the best. Also, let's be honest, mon- regardless of race, cis men. Cis men, yeah, cis bloody men. fucking and patriarchy. hell. <laughs> Patriarchy it's, ba- it's, it's basically, yeah. This wouldn't have happened. None of it would have happened. Oh, good God. Anyway. And I would just encourage people listening, by the way. Yeah. Know, there is, if, if you look up Sufism or feminist Islamic scholars, there's mm. so much out there. Because I really want people to know that, like, the the problems that are hap- what happened to me in the Arab world is much more cultural than it is... Um, Religious. Re- yeah, liturgical from the Quran. A hundred percent. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your but also all week you know as you're bottling things up because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel you know you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to and this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week you just have this complete freedom honestly I think everyone should have therapy regardless of whether they think they need it because it's so amazing to have a confidant it's a journal that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iWay. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean 
every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. I'm glad we had that conversation because it's a conversation I haven't yet had on this podcast about Islam. And I really feel that, you know, especially post 9-11, there's just been so much further and further demonization and people only ever hearing one side. And by the way... I, as someone who comes from a fully Muslim family, like a lineage of Muslim family, uh, you know, of Muslims, I myself have suffered from the Western interpretation of Islam and of the Middle East and of South Asia. I myself, even though I know individuals from that background, mm. I, I was polluted by the ideals of like what I thought Islam was and how, how like oppressive and, and, in what a vile way it was represented and how, what, you know, kind of terrible place to come from it was, you know, to the point that I used to wish that someone would think that I was Spanish, you know, and having grown up in Spain a little bit and like looking a little bit more Western because of my features, because of God knows what kind of pillaging happened in my, you know, like, you know, in my family's past. But I used to pray people would think I wasn't from there. And reading about you, knowing that you had a similar experience, I thought was really interesting. You came out as white to your parents when you were younger. Can you tell me about this? Yeah, well, I would. Yeah. So what happened was, was I'd come to the UK and then pretty soon after I came when I was 13 in 2003 was the war on Iraq and that's where my family are literally from. And and Iraq was the enemy and I was sort of living on, you know, on the oppressor's side now, mm. I suppose. And my parents were really upset because they really, they had friends and family and, you know, their parents were, were still there. You said that when you used were. to speak to your grandmother on the phone, you could hear bombs in the background. Yeah, yeah. you could hear bombs. Yeah. And uh, um, I mean, it was a nightmare, but we were also living... I was very happy to be in in the UK because by that point I knew I was gay and I just knew that I wasn't going to play by any rules. I just just knew in, inside, like, uh-oh, this is going to be quite difficult for me. I knew that really, I think, at age seven in, in that Islam class. And, um, and I, like you were saying, I mean, I equated freedom with, well, at least I'm going to be in the West because freedom for me was like, well, when I eventually do come out and just live as a gay person, I can do so legally. And I'd been to Soho once to go see something in the West End and I'd seen some gay people and a Muslim relative was like, oh, you, they should all be shot, which was like really terrifying. But I, like, I'd seen enough to be like, I'm going to, this is where I'll be able to actualize myself. And so when I kind of was like, right, well, I'm not Muslim anymore. Um, and because my parents were being really homophobic and really policing everything about me, I just thought, well, I'm not going to be Arab anymore. I was like, I'm not going to speak this language. And so I was sort of like, I'm white now, by the way. Like, they'd be like, Amri, you're Iraqi. Why aren't you eating this food? I'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm white. I'm British. I'm really, I don't identify. I want a McDonald's. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, also just like eating, but I was a dick as well about it, which like I would like during Ramadan would like come home and be like, mm, 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 bacon for breakfast, guys, you know? And they were just like, what the fuck are you? I was getting revenge. Yeah, like, it's understandable. On his, it is. It, I mean, obviously we really broke their heart 
And I'm sure I was like a precocious asshole about it. Um, you know, but they're God. denying your whole identity. And even if they're not doing that from a place of hatred because they're trying to protect you from what they think will be hell, it is, yeah, it is yeah. also it like, no, no. it's incredibly abusive and oppressive to ever, like, however decent your intentions are or how much you're a product of your environment, it's also completely understandable that you would feel like rage for someone making you hate what you just inherently are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. And so I took it out... Um, the, not eat, on homophobia. the eating during Ramadan thing's just a bit mean. <laughs> yeah, just a bit mean. Someone's and they starving. brought an is and they brought is then in Islam we had an Islam teacher and she quit because of me. Um she would <laughs> um she would you know, she was really Muslim and, and she, she got me to like we were supposed to write sentences in Arabic and I would just write about like sex and like that was really she was like, use the word big in a sentence so I'd be like Amru Andi Zub Kabir which basically means like Amru's got a huge dick and this is like a really Muslim woman <laughs> like during oh like during God. Ramadan so yeah so yeah but I mean I took the rage out on Islam on being Arab you know not on homophobia itself because I just thought in that really reductive way the West the most liberated place in the world and accepting of queer people the arab world not so i guess i'll be western now and i tried i mean my god i, I took us like things that with her at home got so so awful mm. that without telling my parents i applied for a scholarship to eton college which i don't know if like i mean it's the most it's literally like the opposite of islam isn't it yeah i mean I, it's I mean, <laughs> it's i can't think of a more uh, a more opposite place maybe but it is for those who don't know it's like the kind of most elite school in the United Kingdom it's where like all of the royal family members go it's where every bastard that you see in our um, government uh, went to school and uh, you wear tailcoats you wear tailcoats I mean, I mean it wear- feels like you're yeah it feels like 250 years ago it's just the oldest like English most like patriarchal system really in any yeah, kind of schooling is. institution. But okay, so you got and a scholarship into Eton. That's insane. It was, well, but I was always very, once, as soon as literally, like, as soon as that Islam class happened of you're getting sins on your left shoulder, I just became very studious because I honestly think I was just trying to compensate for all the sins that I was getting. And it was just a way to, and also this is like a real thing that you see, I think, among a lot of queer people that, you know, you get told that what you are is wrong. And so you try and prove to the world that you're right. And for me, just getting 100% was the only thing. I mean, I developed really bad OCD, but it was just, Mm -hmm. it it stopped my brain from thinking about anything else. And it meant that I felt some kind of worth, really unhealthy drive it, which is much more managed now. But back then it was like, if I got 99%, I would like literally throw up. I'd be like, this is the end of the world. And people would be like, are you absolutely mad? Um, so I got a scholarship and I pretended I was Christian actually for my first year. Cause I just was like, I'm going to build a new me. It, all, it was terrible. Eton was the first time that um, I was right. like, oh wow. This- I used to wear a cross at secondary school. Did you? Yeah. And I didn't know That's anything so about religion, but I used to wear a cross. I was doing everything I could. To just that's try and, so and I, I upheld I zero Christian values other than not murdering people. But also that's just because I have no upper body strength. Yeah, I have no upper body strength, so I, can't, I couldn't murder anyone anyway. <laughs> but, uh, that's yeah. so funny that you did that. I forgot until just now that I did that. That's mad to hearing that again and realising that. Also, like after 9-11, I don't think I took my cross off for like another like 
seven That's years. So interesting. <laughs> just like, please don't, please don't throw acid in my face. Did your parents? What did your parents ever be like? Why are you wearing that? No. No, I think they were pretty no. supportive considering like how racist the UK was towards our people. Like, you know, I, I think a lot of parents, you know, get criticised heavily when they go back home with their westernised children. But also if you are going to move to somewhere that is so wholly unwelcoming to your family and right. to your children, sometimes it's just a safety thing. Aligning with whiteness is something that you do for safety. And, and so, you know, I'm kind of still figuring it out is. like what part of me is me and what part of me is survival because mm. you know when my mother came here people used to like you know hold their noses in school when she would walk in because it was the idea that a brown person would stink and this wasn't that long ago you know and so no. and similarly with me it was you know the racial slurs against you know you and me aren't that dissimilar in age the racial slurs the ways in which we've spoken about and then once kind of the rise of terrorism happened and the war started it was just open season on children yeah who looked a it was certain like, way we were all yeah, considered really future was. terrorists and so you know anything i could do that would make me look more like I was from anywhere other than that place was what i did just to make sure that i didn't get you know just murdered yeah, and it makes you really um, hate your heritage, which is yeah. sad because there's so many wonderful things about my heritage, which I now am much more kind of connected to. But I wished I was not Arab. I actually once, because I, I was spotted when I was at 13 at a drama class, like I was spotted by like this this uh, agent and she's like, I can get you loads of work. And I thought, this is great. I'm going to feel so free. And the only work I got the first job I had when I was 14 was in this in Spielberg's film Munich and I played a terrorist son um, and I only got to audition for something to do with terrorists yeah. and I was like this really camp like 14 year old and they'd be like okay like let's detonate the bomb then shall we and I'd be like I can't do this convincingly like it's not like so I really hated it and I was so embarrassed by my nose I tried to bash it in once um, what, so that you could have a nose job? I just wanted it to be straight. No, I wanted to do my own nose job. I oh just my kept God. hitting it with a book. Um, Christ. And I actually dented it a bit. But now, I, now I'm now i very happy with my nose. I love but, your nose. Thank you. It is huge. And damn straight. It deserves to be huge. <laughs> it's fabulous. But it deserves it's, to be I've seen. I've grown into it. Yeah. I've grown into it. Back then, I was literally just like an, a walking nose with arms and legs attached. I mean, I, I felt the same when I was younger as well. And like, I used to consider getting a nose job when I was younger and was encouraged by different family members too. And I'm really glad oh, now. No. I'm really glad now that I didn't do it. I'm I really... know, me too. I was almost going to do it as well. No, I'm glad I didn't. Also, like knowing my luck, it would have just gone like, I would have been one of those, you know, just sort of Voldemort sort of nose <laughs> <laughs> there are some bad ones out there there are some there. bad ones and they they would all happen to me with my terrible luck so uh thank, <laughs> thank goodness for me personally no judgment on anyone else who chooses to do that okay so so we ne so at this time in your life you are a teenager you've just gotten into Eton. at this time you are still identifying as a man but a gay man mm. yeah yeah I think at what so. point did yeah. you learn that you were non-binary it's a really hard one because it's more like, like I kind of came out as non-binary at 27 and I'd been doing drag by that point for about seven years. Um, had you ever considered wanting to be, you know, a trans woman? Like, had you not as in wanting to be, but had you ever like questioned whether you might be a trans woman? Yeah, I had, I had, um, but it, it was more like, so for me back in the Arab world, because the only things I was identifying with were the 
was were feminine was femininity and my mum, who I had a really close relationship with, you know, I really hated a lot of the men in my life and really didn't fit in. So in a kind of childish way, I mean, I don't think I was experiencing um, that kind of intense dysphoria that like I was a woman, but I just was like, from my childhood, I, I was always like saying, I, if I could be born again, can I just be born as a girl so that I can just hang out with my mum and all these girl, women and just be like that because I because I'm failing masculinity so intensely and I'm getting so badly punished for it and femininity was just so embedded in me that I just thought I'd, but I'd always had dysphoria in the fact that like really rejecting masculinity and also like my male body like I just felt like it wasn't a right fit but I didn't really have the language for it and obviously there was no discussion for it. No. There's a, chap- a chapter in my book, but there was, a, when I was a teenager, I became obsessed with marine biology and I started to work in a fish tank shop every weekend. And um, I think the reason I was so drawn to it was because like fish can just change sex. It's literally very fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just was like enchanted by it. And I was like, always, I was, I said, I remember saying to my mom one time, I was like, I just want to be a starfish. And she was like, we need to get you out of the UK. Like, what is going on with you? But I just, I just, and then drag was like a real way to like, at first access that side of myself. But I thought it was this thing that was separate to the rest of me because I was actually having to hide it from family so intensely that it was like, glamour was this thing that I did while I was at uni and on weekends, but if, you know, if ever family was in the country, I'd make sure that I'd, you know, put all my drag in my friend's house. No one could see it. So it almost felt like a second closet in mm. a way. But then it was like at 27, I just was like, um, I remember just someone saying, you know, oh, what's your pronoun they, right? And I, I remember just feeling like, like I was having a lavender bath. It was just like, oh, right that works for me. I just don't feel any um, anxiety about being gendered as a man. And and by that point, drag was such a central part of my life. Like, And drag now for me isn't this separate thing. It's like Glamour is like part of me, even if I'm not in drag. She kind of becomes accentuated when I'm in drag, but it's so fluid. And so I just asked a few friends really, and I was like, can we just try this out? Um, and it just was like, a weight off. So I, I kind of think I found the language of being non-binary, you know, at 27, but was probably non-binary my whole life. Yeah. What's your quantum physics analogy for <laughs> being non-binary, being non-binary that non-binary. I love so much? <laughs> well, thank you for, to, to you for sharing that. Um, so basically... I became obsessed with this while I was at uni, but I've always held it quite close to me whenever I've been feeling, you know, whether it's dysphoria or just anxiety about the way that the world is going. So basically, if you think of heteronorm, if you think of standard Newtonian physics as heteronormative physics and quantum physics as queer theory, quantum physics is to Newtonian physics, what queer theory is to heteronormativity. Now, Newtonian physics is brilliant in many ways, but it's very concerned with looking at the overall formulas and rules that govern the universe. You know, if I do A, what happens to B? What is the finite formula? And it's macro. Mm -hmm. It's literally like looking at almost, if you think about it, constructs. Like how does... 
you know, what are these universal formulas that will make us understand the world? And in a way, like, there's a kind of egocentricism of it. It's like, I just want to know the rational underpinning for how everything works. So A does B. Quantum physics is when we were able to start looking at inside atoms, which were, you know, once thought to be the smallest things in the world, but then neutrons, electrons and protons, you can even go inside them. And that's where quantum physics happens. And when you're looking at the tiny most subatomic particles and the way that they behave um, kind of contradicts what happens in Newtonian physics. So if Newtonian physics is going, you know, you do A and B happens in quantum physics, you'll see that the particle that's doing A is also doing B, but it's doing A a bit more sometimes. And as a result, reality starts to approximate it so that reality can kind of um, solidify what's happening on a subatomic level. So um, the most famous experiment to uh, explain this is the double slit one, where you basically fire an electron through a wall with two holes, and every now and then it will go to the left or right, and a sensor will pick it up. But every now and then it will just go to both at the same time, because like an electron isn't really like a finite thing; it's like a wave that every now and then just sort of defies what the logic physically should should happen. And so multiple versions of the same thing are always happening. And this is literally like embedded in like the world. So I always like to think about that when people are like, um, I think it's a really good explanation for why fascism, for instance, is wrong if you wanted to like go to it, because it's literally like fascism and a lot of um, all body, every kind of fascism is all about like the natural order of things is that these people are the purest. So this is what a cis person is. And if you go, well, actually in nature, the most natural order is chaos. And it's no surprise that once this video I did from the channel four video, I got so many emails and there is a huge population of trans quantum physicists. They tend to go to quantum physics, not all the time, you know, but a lot of queer, queer physicists are drawn to quantum physics because I think it disrupts boundaries. And trans people and non-binary people disrupt boundaries. Like they don't subscribe the to the kind of gendered boxes that you're supposed to tick. You know, we had Alok on this podcast recently, mm. you know, who was talking oh, about love, the, yeah. the freedom they mentioned of transness, of the fact that, you know, and I was also talking to Monroe Berg. And biology is yeah. science is in destiny. Exactly. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Something that I thought was so interesting when I was researching you is that, you know, you talk about 
your mother kind of being this icon to you and everything you kind of wanted to emulate for a while. I mean, there was a period through which you kind of, you know, when you started drag, you said you were like unhappy drag where you were this sort of bitchy white woman. Um, Mm -hmm. But then like kind of over time, you've become a kind of happier, you know, uh, drag woman in drag, I guess, would we describe it? How do you break it? How do I, would I describe that? A drag queen? The drag queen, exactly. You become the happy drag queen who is, uh, you know, now, you know, paying homage to your culture, kind of paying homage to your mother. And I want to find out how your mother felt about you once she found out about you doing drag and kind of emulating uh, an exaggerated version almost of her. But I also Mm. want to get into the fact that while your mother probably had to wrestle with it, the fact that she would end up feeling jealous of you because of the freedom mm. you're able to exude in this version of her that you portray. I think it's magical. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. The, that, yeah, beautifully put. Take me, take me to the time that she found out that you were, like, when did you come out as a drag queen? Well, I was outed by a very angry relative <sighs> who, had, who had business in Iraq and he wanted to scare the shit out of me. So, How did he, he find out? Was he at a show? A friend of his randomly, a, a friend of a friend was just at a show and put a photo up on, on Facebook being like, oh, watching this great show. And they were friends on Facebook. Um, and I was in a very uncompromised position. Um, I think I was basically pretending like the microphone was a dick and sort of sitting on it. And I was like 24 and I was taking a lot of drugs back then. I was, that was an unhappy drag moment actually, mm-hmm. because, because my drag was like, fuck the world and fuck anyone who doesn't, which has its place. But, and I actually think it was, so some people said it was always quite electrifying to watch because people didn't know if I was about to like, Stab someone. What I was going to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was quite unhinged as a performer yeah. back then. In a way that was, I think, really fun at points because I was just so like, get it all out. But it, but it was coming from quite a, a dark place. And it, it, I think it does still come from a dark place, but now in a much more positive way, I would hope. But yeah, so he, so he spread that to the family and shit really hit the fan. You know, you know my mum was, you know, basically saying, you know, you're literally like, the thing I hate most about my life, you know, you're the reason that I commit, I want to commit suicide. Like you are the worst thing that's ever happened. My whole, the whole family zeroed in on me as this problem. Mm. Um, because it was like, I broke all the rules. Like everyone was going about their lives in the way that they were supposed to. And I was going, ah, I just want to do what I want. And I'd graduated from Cambridge. So, but I was, so they just thought, oh, well, why don't you get like a proper job? And I just was like doing whatever I wanted. And everyone was zeroing in on me. Um, So I, after that basically said, you know what? Fuck you guys. Let's just end this, you know, but I hadn't taken their money really since I was about, you know, since I'd started uni at 18, 19, And so um, I was like, there's no, there's literally no reason. I don't need your money. Like I'm renting this really crap apartment. You know, I'm making just, I mean, I was barely making anything back then, but was just managing it, you know, just figuring it out. I was like, this is, I was like, I was like, if you want to see me, then you have to not say these things to me because I really, I was like, I hate you guys. I don't want any, I don't want to be around this at all. Um, and so there was a period of just a long time of not seeing them and just doing my own thing. How long? 
Um, years, really. I mean, th- there was one bit where it was like a year of literally no communication. Mm-hmm. But back then it was probably like once every six months I would do like, yes, I'm alive, leave me alone kind of call. Um, yeah. But then um, I made friends with a with a, an Arab girl who had had kind of a similar journey to me and others through networks in the UK and was starting to like remember not only really bad things that had happened, but just like, oh my God, this reminds me of like some quite happy memories about my mom. And so instead of getting in touch with my mom, because I wasn't ready to, because of, because at that point she had so much denial. She was just like, I did nothing wrong. I was a perfect parent. I was like, well, you said this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and this, and you did this. She's like, no, didn't happen. You were really lucky to have me as a parent. So like, I wasn't really, yeah. and you're not allowed to really question your parents. It's the really Gaslight really Express. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it, it, it was that. And so I, when I was sort of spending time with a lot of these other Arabs and queer Arabs, I'm going to some queer Arab parties. I was like, oh, wow. Well, I'm not ready to talk to my mum because she's not ready to just apologise. But maybe I'll start incorporating these things into my drag as a way to... um, Feel closer to her, maybe. Yeah, yeah, feel closer to her and feel closer to this thing that was part of me, but I wasn't ready for the kind of carnage of it. Um, And I was... I think my drag character back then literally became my mum if she had not been... Um, made to follow the rules. It was like kind of, it was like performing a version of her that I wish that she was. Yeah. Had she not believed that all these rules were there. Um, And then after a long time, she just was like, I I really can't do this anymore. You're the love of my life. I just need to talk to you. And so, I mean, I didn't arrive in drag or anything because like, poor woman. (laughs) But I arrived just, but I did arrive wearing something quite out there. And she just was like, had a bit of a wait an awakening herself uh, the the uncle who had spread that photo around me was had basically fucked her over in quite a major way and he was seen as this sort of untouchable patriarch who was just so moral and she kind of realized that oh wait um and she sort of was like look i really don't like what you do and it's caused a lot of genuine pain for me because she was getting so much shit because it's the mum's job to be a good parent. No, you know, yeah. no one has a go at the dad. So she was getting friends calling her up being like, what are you doing? We're getting calls here, here. And she was like, but, you know, what I don't get is that, like, you know, I'm a woman. I've grown up in the Arab world. Men tell me to do this, this and this. You know, I have no power in a way. No autonomy, no like, financial autonomy as well. No financial, yeah, none of that. And you you know, are, you, you, are, you have the gift of being born a man, the way, you know, that's what she thinks. And you've decided to, to, to do this when, and be a, basically dress up as a woman when being a woman is the most horrible thing. Mm. Um, and obviously there's some real issues with like, it's very simplistic way of understanding like gender, obviously. Yeah, but, but I also, by the way, I relate. I I have hated being a woman so much longer than I've loved being a woman. I really? wished I was a boy. I dressed like a boy, behaved like a boy, tried to walk like a boy, like everything about me. I distanced myself from women. I used to shit on women, not literally. Um, <laughs> I just don't have that kind of movement um, in me. Um, but I, uh, you know, I, I was such a little misogynist and I really just... 
even though so many men had hurt me in my life, I still felt like, well, wow, you have the the power to just get away with stuff. You have so much power, right. so much freedom. And as a woman, I have no freedom and I'm just this sort of like, you know, little blob waiting to be attacked by a man. I just like, I just thought there was so much power and and mm. greatness in being a man. And so, you know, I was very much so the kind of embodiment of impersonation as the highest form of flattery. It really took me until the last couple of years, even when I was performing femme, you know, and like all the strapless mm. dresses when I was on T4 in the Eng- in England, you know, and like just like all the makeup and all the heels and stuff, which I still do now sometimes. But I was performing femininity so intensely, but again, still still just secretly longing to be a boy. It's really only been Mm. the last couple of years that I've started to understand that you can be a woman and not give in to all of the stereotypes and you can be quote unquote alpha and a bit masculine and you can just be whatever the fuck you want. And I look to people like you and Alok and, and all these different great thinkers and speakers in the world as a part of my my journey through that into understanding that. But as simplistic oh. as your mother was, I do get it, especially coming from I a similar it, yeah. coming from a similar background. You just feel so fucking powerless. Yeah, I think I think and yeah, you're right. And it made me realize in a way, like, oh, you've got your own story. And obviously as a kid, you know, you can't really see that. You're just like yeah. I'm you are my PA. <laughs> That's what you yeah, think exactly. about your parents. You're my personal And assistant. everything you do is about... And I think she just thought... Um, I think there was also a double... A, a double ed, Like a double thing, which was that like... She was thinking, hold on. I played by the rules. You know, your brother's played by the rules. Everyone's played by the rules. I'm going to... This is going to sound harsh. A lot of them are unhappy, but they've decided to play by the rules. Mm. And... And it was a bit of a slap in the face that I was like, I really disagree with your rules and I'm going to do what I want. And I think I'm actually now quite happy and free. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, as a woman in her fifties and as, you know, she, I, I wonder if part of it was a bit of an identity crisis of like, if breaking the rules was, could end up being so much fun and freeing, why didn't I? Mm-hmm. I always think that. And that's why I always say that like, my drag is my, the version of my mum who broke the rules. I love that. It's so poetic. I mean, oh, it's such a great, it's like, it's such a, like a, it's so beautiful, but it's so heartbreaking as well, that that's oh. the freest that she can be is through you. But I also love that tribute to her. It is interesting, isn't it? The, the fear mongering of others when you question a system that they have lived within. I feel like sometimes even amongst my own peers, uh, and I mean this with like other women, let's say in this instance, I can sometimes they can sometimes get triggered by me even when I'm not doing anything to them because I'm exhibiting freedom and I'm mm. questioning the yeah, system. Yeah, I mean, you get so much shit. I, I get so much shit, but I don't get anywhere near as much shit as I get love. It just, it, it's perceived mm. as if I get shit because that's what the headlines, you know, promote. But I'm just talking about internally in a way that other people don't witness. Things that I go on, that go on between me and other women sometimes within the same kind of work realm as me. I've got wonderful women friends, but I... Amongst my peers, I noticed that in my decision to just not lose weight, <laughs> to not uh, freak out over food or the decision to like question my role or ask for the same hair and makeup time as men or like whatever, just my little kind of micro decisions to be like, no, I think I'm just going to say what I want and do what I want and still be polite yeah, and professional, right. but just kind of, you know, exist in a bit more freedom. I'm not going to try and placate everyone or bend over backwards um, if it's inappropriate to do so. Um, I think that can, mm-hmm. that my, throughout my career, in t- like 12 years, has triggered the other women around me. Similarly, when I was in England, 
And I decided, you know what, I think I want to just move to America and see what happens. The fear and rage that people projected onto me as in like, how dare you think you can leave England and go to America and chase your dream? Like, how dare you have ambition? How dare you think that you can just take that risk and not be embarrassed about the fact that you'll probably come back with your tail between your legs, which I thought I would do. I felt quite certain I would. And I thought that was really fucking honorable because it means you tried. I think it's super cool and brave. But and again, similarly with my my fam- familial background, the fact that I broke all the rules and I decided not to be the good Muslim girl and the wife and the mother. And I decided to go out and just like break all of the rules and try and liberate as many girls as I could and just mm. speak with a filthy mouth and be, you know, dishonorable sometimes or be disobedient, fuck up in public, not then go and like, you know, disappear, come back, get better, like exhibit certain freedoms that only men are given. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. rage that people project onto me, and it's and I, I, I kind of want to just so ask you projection. about it. So much projection, and is it because they're disgusted by it, or is it because they resent the fact that they aren't having that freedom, or is it the fact that they're worried that they will be able to look back on their life and think, "Fuck, I could have lived like that all along." No mm. one told me I was allowed to just do it my way. And you are confronting me. You know, a bit like when we had the women push back against the Me Too movement, the older women push yeah, back against yeah, young yeah, women yeah. coming out in the Me Too movement. It's like, oh God, maybe you have been abused. They were saying, deal with it. Yeah. They, a lot of them was, deal with it. Men, some of them were literally saying, deal with it. Men sometimes rape, but it is what it is. Yeah, or sometimes it's, what did Jermaine Greer say? She said it was just bad sex. Rape is just bad sex. Like if we just convince women to look at it in a better way. Fucking insane. But part of me was like, you know, these a lot of these women have likely, statistically likely been abused. And they don't want to own up to that. Because mm. they don't want to look back on a life where they just tolerated behavior that was unacceptable. They'd rather we all well, just keep normalizing the confinement. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like... Sorry, it's um, a big rant. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, I compl- no, I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm, I really agree with you. I mean, like, I mean, you know, conservatism, whether it's political or social, is about keeping things the way they are. And right now, I think in the world... You're having an uprising of people going, oh, wait, no, I don't like the way things are. And you're having quite a violent reaction politically by people going, no, this is the way that we've always done it. And therefore we need to, which is like, I literally think that that is the fault line of America right now is that on the ground is very different to what's happening in power. And it's like, yeah, but but I see it all the time. And I definitely see it among gay men. There's a lot of... um, some white, mostly white, but cis masculine men have quite a, a, a visceral reaction to me sometimes. Like, you know, like, why are you at this party? Or, um, you know, just like, oh, no, never fuck anyone like you. And some of the oh. stuff I get on Grinder or that kind of stuff. And, you know, Alok talks, talks about this as well, actually. You know, your desire for me makes you hate me because it's like showing something about yourself. So with gay men, for instance, a lot of them have gone, well, um, I don't want society to see me as an other, which, you know, society shouldn't, but like, therefore I'm going to just assimilate and be masculine and that's it. And that's it. The jig is up. And then someone really femme and queer comes along and is like, nah, I don't actually love that idea, to be honest. And so they get violent with the femme person for revealing the other way of things rather than the system that's uh, uh, which is um essentially slightly co-opted them to mask up and like if they are 
you know, I've seen it with guys in their forties, like clearly don't like their jobs. There a lot of them are working in finance and their self-worth as gay men is having a perfect physique, seeming really masculine, seeming straight acting. That's what they say, you know, straight acting guy here. And then like when a femme drag queen like comes on stage and is like, wow, guys, lol, no, that's not the one. And it's just like doing what they want. It's like they're revealing the thing that they've sacrificed in a way or that they don't even want to hear about. Mm. So now when I get those kind of violent reactions, I'm quite like, oh, I've evolved. Yeah. (laughs) And also, I think it's important to point out, and I think this is coming out more and more now, that you don't just have to be a straight cis man to be capable of misogyny. There is so much misogyny and so much patriarchy in and amongst cis gay men. I experience it the worst now in in pockets of the gay community. Yeah, like... Feels more divided it, than it, ever, honestly, or at least, it, yeah, really in the last does. 30 years. And, and, and in the UK in particular, you know, a big sect of, you know, quote-unquote progressive lesbians, generation above mostly, thinking that, you know, trans women are coming to eradicate a lesbianism and, you know, is, you know, and I think that's a kind of similar, it's coming from a similar place. So it's generational, but it's also, I mean, the gay community is so divided. Like I wore a dress to this party. I was in Mykonos for a week um, and I didn't realize it was going to be so kind of mass, mass. And so I bought this dress, which is just like a day dress. It was really fun. I thought, well, I don't usually wear that on the street in London because I can't be bothered for any shit but I'm going to wear that when I'm at this gay party. And one guy was like, why are you wearing that? I was like, I think it looks really cute. And he was like, this is a gay men's party. I was like, okay, why do I feel like I would feel safer at a rugby match right now? This is very strange that this is happening in a gay club. Mm. And I don't know whether it was maybe just repulsion, but also like, we, it's almost this thing of we've all collectively decided that the thing to be winning at life is being really masculine and rich. Um, and like, you know, I actually do make good money, but, you know, they don't see, they, they just think you're really femme, so therefore you're a failure. And so you're coming here and living for yourself as a femme person tells us we're wrong. Is it a similar thing to, is it a similar thing to what the, you know, the older lesbians in the United Kingdom are going through where they're, you know, they feel as though there's almost like a heteronormative uh heteronormative what am I, what's the word um incentive behind transness right it's like you're so repulsed by being gay that you'd rather transition so that you could be in a heteronormative relationship so let's say that you have a woman who doesn't want to be a lesbian so therefore she becomes this is their theory this is not truth yeah. um that you are a, a a gay woman who would rather become a trans man to then be in a relationship with a gay woman so that that way you are modelling some sort of heteronormative relationship. That's what their paranoia about the existence of trans people is, whereas trans people have always existed and that has never happened. Lesbians have never been erased. They never will be erased. It's a completely different thing. But do you think that potentially that is happening with gay men on the other side where they feel as though you are trying to lure them with your femininity into a more heteronormative looking relationship because you are femme and they are a man who's supposed to be attracted to what we know to be men and then you are coming in and threatening that by behaving in some ways that are feminine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's that same small-minded well, like terror that completely refuses to acknowledge history and uh, yeah. sense. 
I think it, uh, I think it's, I think it's slightly different to be honest with mm-hmm. the gay, gay male and, and, and what you were talking about with that sort of kind of demented paranoia about trans men. I think it's really embedded in pure misogyny right. and pure like patriarchal privileging of masculinity because what I think I've noticed is that there are these men who when they realize they're gay think they failed masculinity somehow and so the way to compensate for it is by hyper masculinity which is why you see a lot of that in the gay community and only sleeping with hyper masculine men it's like the world told me that being gay was this weakness so look how masculine I am so I think the their their repulsion to to femme gays or you know non you know queers like myself is it's like it makes them confront their queerness which they still think is a problem mm. which is which so they so they're suffering from the worst kinds of queer shame in a way because it's like they constantly think that they have to compensate for it by adhering to heteronormative standards. It's a shame to go to break out of one box only to build yourself another one. Why is it worse in the UK at the moment? Um, I think the UK has just basically got a long... is much more conservative historically, actually. Mm. Um, well, it's where all like, the shit starts all over the world, isn't it? Fucking... <laughs> Great Britain. <laughs> yeah, Great Britain. Like, we've been around for centuries. America wouldn't have happened. No. <laughs> Great Britain. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I get it. I actually don't even, you don't even need to answer that question. We all know yeah. we can just look back through history. Um, and and but the main thing to say is that the UK hasn't actually grappled with it. We've never had, the, his colonialism is not taught in schools. And as a result, we've not, no one's decolonized here. So no matter what people say, like, we will always be a country that aspires to kind of whiteness and and, yeah. and rigidity until we start undoing some of that stuff. Well, to paraphrase, it's that expression that if we do not examine our previous mistakes, if we don't examine our history, then we're doomed to repeat our mistakes of that history. And exactly. so that's exactly what we're facing. Who, 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 said, who said that, Jamila? Um, it was George uh, Santayana, actually. Uh, so I, uh, I don't know if you know, I just, um, I've always got him on my mind. Uh, so yeah, cool. Just letting everyone know that I'm really smart and informed. <laughs> um, and what he actually said, as I'm reading from my phone, because I, I obviously did not really know this, um, is... Those who don't learn, fuck me. Those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it. There we go. Much better than I said it. Fucking George Santayana. Smashing it. Um, All right. Quickly, uh, I would love to know what, where are you now through this whole journey, this epic journey of your life? You now, would you now describe yourself as a Muslim? Um, Yeah, I would actually. That's great. You do kind of more subscribe to the Sufism. Yeah, Sufism yeah. in particular. Yeah. And you are a happy non-binary person. You have found comfort and joy in that area. Yeah, I, I think where I basically, I think so many of my anxieties through life were about always finding like a destination and then just having that. And those always essentially mm. limited me. And so for me, I'm just, I'm very happy to constantly basically be chasing a horizon and I sort of feel like I'm just constantly just becoming. So just being in a kind of constant state of change 
not as in a fickle change, like, you know, tomorrow I'm going to wake up and decide that I'm Christian again, but like... A growth. But just, a gro- just feeling like, actually, that's what I love about the they pronoun. It's like, it's just, it's a neutral place where anything can happen. And that's kind of where I see myself now. Um, I've definitely resolved a lot of stuff, but yeah. And where is your mental health at, would you say? I mean, I have bad mental health, unfortunately, that I've just had from a very, very young age. Managed quite well from sertraline. Um, what is sertraline? I, I Sorry, the, I don't know. Oh, it's oh, it's my SSRI. Um, it's an antidepressant, yeah. I loved it so much that I did a drag show where I got married to it and then used a dildo that was shaped like sertraline and had sex with it. Classic. I'm just so in love. <laughs> I'm so in love with my sertraline. You know, my, my mental health is so much better than it's... I mean, compared to where I was, my God, I look back at like how bad my OCD was and how much I hated myself and all that stuff. Um, But to me, it's just this thing that's part of my brain that is literally neurologically wired to think that I'm always accumulating sin and I'm a failure. And that is there every day. I'll probably get off this call and be like, what 10 things did I say that might have offended Jamila or whatever? Nothing, nothing. You've said nothing that has offended me. I've adored this conversation. Oh, me too. But I also now have just nice voices in my head going I don't think you said anything which I never used to have so it's it's like those voices are always going to be there but I've learned how to just sort of go oh okay well I'll talk to you later actually right now I just sort of um and for me just yeah my work really keeps me happy being in drag keeps me happy other queer people keep me happy so so living in your truth has 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 it may not have like perfected your existence but it has definitely made you feel happier and freer yeah, freer, definitely. That's oh my so God, important. my one thing to everyone is just, just if everyone could just live their authentic self, it's, and if they have the privilege to be able to do it safely, that that is really the best remedy for anything, I think. A hundred percent. Well, when you get off this call, you're going to have all those doubts and worries. When I get off this call, I'm just going to read more of George Santayana, um, as I always do. <laughs> yeah, I know. Just got his book in my back pocket. Always, yeah. Uh, <laughs> exercise to pit Then maybe I'll read some Nietzsche, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway. L- listen to some Pitbull. <laughs> Gotta listen to some Pitbull, uh, Mr. Worldwide. Anyway, um, listen, thank you so much. It's such a no, thank you. fascinating journey you've been on. If you want to learn more about Amro's life story, then I strongly suggest you read Life as a Unicorn, which takes you through that whole journey in so much detail. And they are so funny and relatable and cool and interesting. And before you leave, having already asked you for so much, would you please tell me, what do you weigh? Well, I weigh my uh, interactions with other queer people Um, all the time. Those always enrich me. Um, I weigh the power of being in drag on stage and feeling so um, connected to just who I am inside. I weigh my makeup because it's literally like a toolbox for just self-expression. It's like whenever I've had a bad day, I always just put makeup on and I'm like, ah, that's healed. I weigh um, watching Grey's Anatomy because those characters I grew up with and Christina Yang is basically my sister, even though she doesn't know it. Um, um, And I weigh... I weigh, like, looking over 
the, some of the achievements I've made in terms of drag and writing and allowing myself to feel good about them because I don't often allow myself to do that, but I'm trying to do that a lot more and going, actually, you should be proud of yourself. Well, I think you are way more of a saint than a sinner for whatever it's worth. Oh. And, and <laughs> oh, that's good. It's Thank a, you. And it's an intense background to come from. And I, I can definitely relate to you in more ways than yeah, one. And so I admire and look up to you so much for how you've oh, been I able so. to stand against so much alternative programming and be yourself. And uh, to all of us brown brown queer people <laughs> we say thank you because you continue to reaffirm our decisions to exist outside of the box oh thank you jimmy lynn thanks for all the amazing work you do it's so inspiring to see love you Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Erin Finnegan and Kimmy Gregory. It is edited by Andrew Carson and the beautiful music that you're hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. If you haven't already, please rate, review and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support. I really appreciate it and it amps me up to bring on better, better guests. Lastly, at I Weigh, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iweighpodcast at gmail.com. It's not in pounds and kilos, so please don't send that. It's all about your just, you, you know, you've been on the Instagram. Anyway, and now here is a little message from one of our iWay listeners. A listener today wrote in and said, I weigh my art, my criminology degree, my love of music, autistic and proud, my bisexuality, anxiety, my Harry Potter obsession, my voluntary work, my family, my daily meditation. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.